Hey, we have just a short podcast for you today. We're heading out of town, but we do want to get you a couple how-tos. Now, we've been seeing a lot of the presidential seal lately. Saw it, you know, last week at the inauguration. We'll probably be seeing uh, it again around the State of the Union coverage. It's all over the place. Jimmy Stamp writes about design for the Smithsonian. So, Jimmy, can you just tell us, uh, first of all, what the first presidential seal looked like? Well, the earliest presidential seal was a sketch made by Millard Fillmore. Um, to call it a sketch might be a little generous. It's more of a, a doodle, maybe something he absentmindedly scribbled while he was tapping away on a telegraph next to him or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's just basically a little squiggly circle that says eagle on the inside and then around that the seal of the president of the United States. So, so he doesn't he doesn't even go so far as to draw the eagle in coming up with the seal. He just writes the word eagle in the middle he, of a circle. He, he just writes the word eagle, right? <laughs> yeah, and then trusts it to uh, an engraver to kind of flesh things out. So, why did he do that? What what prompted him to create that? Well, at this point, um, there was already a, a great seal for the United States. So it's likely that when he wrote Eagle, uh, he was probably thinking something along the lines of the Eagle that was in the Great Seal of the United States. So, okay, so the presidential seal started with uh, Millard Fillmore. So when, when did the, the Great Seal come about? So the uh, original seal, the, the original Great Seal was uh, decreed in the same day that the uh, Declaration of Independence was approved, July 4th, 1776. So this design commission was created that consisted of uh, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. And there were, you know, eight years, two or three design committees, countless sketches and redesigns, and, and eventually, in 1782, the, the Great Seal was kind of formally approved by Congress. But Ben Franklin uh, was not a fan of it. He thought the, uh, the eagle was a bird of bad moral character. <laughs> Seems like kind of a, a funny thing to say. And uh, he thought the representation that they chose was just a kind of a hideous, uh, a terrible drawing. He thought it looked, it looked weak. He thought it looked more like a turkey rather than an eagle. But eventually, I think some of his complaints were addressed. And, and over the years, on both seals, the eagle was kind of bulked up and made to look a little more, uh, a little more formal, a little more worthy of a, a piece of American heraldry. So the, the original eagle, as it was drawn, was a kind of skinny, kind of weak-looking bird. And then um, by 1885, it was formalized into what we what we think of today as the American Eagle. Well, Jimmy, this is great. Thank you so much for your time. Nice uh, talking to you. Thank you. As we mentioned, the State of the Union is next week. And as you probably know, after the president's speech is over, the other side gets a crack at it in the official response. And this is a huge moment for the party in opposition. So how do you take full advantage of it? How do you craft a response after the president speaks? Last year, former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels made the official Republican response. So, Governor, first question, how did you get picked to do it? This is shrouded in mystery, at least to me. I I, uh, got a phone call while traveling in uh, December of 2011. Uh, Actually, the office said, Speaker Boehner and Senator McConnell want to talk to you. And I I said, on the same day, you know, what are the the odds? And they said, no, on the same call. And... um, I didn't see it coming. Maybe I should have been smart enough to figure it out. But when I got on the phone with the two of them, they simply invited me and for, for reasons best known to them. But um, uh, it came out of the blue. And uh, let me just say, it's not an assignment one would 
go seeking, at least not this one. I'm curious, what was your impression of that role before you took that call? Well, to tell the truth, I had not always been impressed by them. I, if I'm honest, I'd tell you I hadn't watched all of them. Well, okay, so we had Bobby Jindal in 2009, Rising Star, Flames Out. 2010, we have the Virginia governor, Bob McDonald. He does this big, kind of almost mimics the State of the Union where he walks down the Capitol, uh, big crowd, applause. He also flames out. Is there any sense that maybe this response role is cursed? <laughs> well, I felt that I got a, a very uh, gracious response. But I opted for a little different approach, as you may have noticed. Uh, I just tried to play it low-key and in a studio. Um, and um, I, I tried to be, while, while forceful in, in pointing out why I thought the nation needed a different direction, uh, also, uh, as I said, to respect the role of the loyal opposition, I... I I recall I began by identifying maybe three things on which I thought the president uh, should be com- for which he should be commended before turning to those things where we had differences. Now, um, you're doing it live, and I imagine you really want to be prepared and ready to go. So are you watching the State of the Union, or are you sort of uh, getting ready, uh, going over your notes at that point? No, I didn't watch. Yeah. I, uh, I confess I didn't. I uh, went out, had dinner with a couple of buddies, and... Uh, and went down to the the uh, building where that we had chosen. I had written the speech. Uh, I write all my own speeches if they're written at all, and uh, uh, I, I was pretty comfortable with it. I'd probably practiced once or twice, but when you've written it yourself, you know what's coming next. And my biggest problem was the president ran long and sort of sitting around waiting. <laughs> well, if uh, we, so we have the State of the Union coming up next week, uh, which will, of course, be followed by a response. What advice would you give to the person who is going to be in this role that you were in uh, last year? Well, there's no manual for it. Uh, I looked and I can confirm that uh, you just, you're on your own. I guess I would, I would say that uh, I was given almost complete leeway by the leadership um, they were not. Uh, I, I showed them my draft. They made one minor suggestion, uh, which I honored. But my my own recommendation, I guess, would be stay with your own style, your own approach. Um, do not try to compete with the uh, uh, unrivaled platform that the president has. Did you hear from the president what what he thought of your response? Well, no. Okay. He probably has a good sense to. <laughs> Go home, go to bed, and not watch me, and that would make us even. Well, Governor, thank you so much for this. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's any use to you, but it's, an, it's a really interesting question. And uh, it was an interesting exercise to go through, I will say that. I, I felt good about it when it was over, but up until that point, I thought, you know, uh, why me? <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice feeling, I bet. You know, I just I sort of felt like when the lights went down, I felt like, well, I think we got away with another one. <laughs> <laughs> And now for the uh, official response to our interview with Governor Mitch Daniels, the guy that works in the deli downstairs. We think his name is Stavros. Uh, He's a good guy. And now for the official response to the official response to our interview about the official response to the State of the Union with Governor Mitch Daniels, Governor Mitch Daniels. Uh, just like his uh, cheeseburgers and hash browns, I found Stavros's response uh, uh, savory and memorable. And uh, um, 
but also concise uh, and uh, about the length that responses to State of the Unions themselves should be. We heard from Adrian and Cruzan. They listened to the show while playing in the park with their dog. All right, you two. These next 15 seconds are for you. Me and my arrow. If I had a dog, I bet my dog would love this. Another thing we could have done right now, uh, instead of this song, is to just play a really high-pitched uh, sound. It'll just you know, just dog. for the dog. We are still collecting your toilets of the week. You can get them to us at howto at npr.org. This week's winner comes from Rachel in New Orleans. So, Rachel, tell us about your toilet. Um, okay, well, my submission was that toilets. Um, I go attend church on St. Charles Avenue. It's called Rain Memorial Church, and we are directly on the main uh, Mardi Gras parade route. So mo- all of the major parades, and really most of the New Orleans parades, go right by the front of the church. So every year from the Wednesday before Mardi Gras until Mardi Gras Day, we set up four uh, portalettes in front of the church, and the youth group runs them. And the youth group spend the entire time in between every person that uses the, the potty. The youth run in there, and they clean it, and they make sure everything is just like it was before. And I have been told over and over again that we have the cleanest portalettes in New Orleans. Hey. So uh, I'm just assuming these children are being punished for something. Yes, indeed, for their sins. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, they are earning money because every year uh, during the summer they go on a, a youth group trip, mm-hmm. and so they do this to earn money to pay for the trip. And the adults work too, but um, you know we we do things like collecting money and and uh, supervising. You know. I mean, I wonder if you could just have a car wash. This makes a lot more money than a car wash. It makes a lot of money. How much do the, how much does it cost to use one of those toilets? Um, two dollars. Whatever you're doing, two dollars. There's not a Whatever sliding scale. Yeah. Well, that I have to say that I just I feel like we should we should be thanking you because that is uh, one of the most essential and uh, worst jobs you could possibly have during Mardi Gras. <laughs> Indeed. It's actually a lot of fun. The kids actually do have a lot of fun. Have they had any uh, odd encounters with uh, Mardi Gras revelers? We do get people sort of falling over and slurring their speech, but mostly they're they're all right. Well, it almost seems like this could be kind of a, a great kind of scared straight program <laughs> for the kids to deter them from a life of Mardi Gras craziness. I actually, I teach um, part-time, I teach classes in the schools, uh, to kids about drugs and alcohol, and I often I'm like, y'all seen those people on Mardi Gras falling on the streets? Does that look like fun? Um, so yeah, <laughs> we use that as examples. <laughs> well, Rachel, congratulations! You have our toilet of the week. Yay! And seriously, thank thank you, and thank those uh, thank the youth group kids because that's that's God's uh, work. It is. <laughs> That does it for this week's show. What we learned today, Mike? Well, I learned that the president is intimately involved, or at least the president was when it was Millard Fillmore, was involved in creating the presidential seal. I think it's amazing that the eagle 
you know, we think of it as, you know, this patriotic, glorious bird. And it used to have a bad reputation. You know, the bald eagle wasn't something you looked at with reverence. It was like, eh, that bald guy. All the other birds were probably laughing at him. I feel like, honestly, if you're a bald eagle, you have so many great qualities. You're a great hunter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you take care of your kids. And they named you Bald Eagle. They named you after the worst thing about you. Why not Good Guy Flying Eagle? Why, why, I bet he's mad that's not his Hand, name. Handsome Eagle. Yeah. Well, I, I learned uh, in the time since we talked to him, I learned that Stavros is actually named Chris. We could have just asked. <laughs> It'd be so much simpler. <laughs> Talking to Rachel about the, the porta potties in New Orleans reminded me of the there's a porta potty across the street from us where they're doing construction and it has a great name which is Leprechaun. I do think more than any other industry, Portageon companies name their businesses well. I don't understand Leprechaun. It's a leprechaun, which has nothing to do with going potty outside. Have you ever seen uh, Duty Calls? That <laughs> Portageon company. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Haga with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Jonathan Leonard. Thanks, Jonathan. You you made it all happen this week. You hit it out of the park, buddy. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And visit our website at howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. What about yesterday's Meals on Wheels? That's another good one.